Welcome back, everyone, to Your Life, God's Word, where we take the principles found in Scripture and we apply them to our everyday lives, those areas that are most important, faith, family, and community. In this episode, we continue with our series on God's nature. We take a step back, or perhaps we take a step up, and we look at things from a little bit larger perspective, giving a couple of principles, some guiding principles that we should use whenever we are discussing God, His nature, His attributes, and the like. We also go through several scriptures that really tie a link between statements made by Yahweh in the Old Testament and similar statements made by Jesus Christ, thereby showing, or we think proving, that Jesus can rightly be called God because of the infilling of the Father in him. So sit back and let's dive into this episode. Welcome back, everyone. We are right in the middle of that Christmas, New Year time frame, so I hope everyone's enjoying time with uh, family, friends over the holidays, and uh, if you have some time listening to the podcast, but maybe you're catching up uh, in 2022 at this point. So what we are continuing to do is dive into the series on God's nature, uh, the Godhead, and what we're trying to accomplish is to give understanding directly from the scriptures to decipher and understand and know uh, the nature of God. And anytime we are doing that, we can get into a, um, a little quagmire where, yeah, there are things we don't fully and completely and totally understand. But I think when we read the scriptures and God has made an attempt, he has tried to reveal himself to us. I think that's a place where we can take confidence and know well, this is how it is. Well, how do you know? Well, that's what God said. And so I don't think um, we should constantly rely on, well, it's a mystery, God's a mystery. Uh, yeah, I guess you could kind of say that, but not the not in the areas where he's revealed himself, where he's made himself plain or clear through the use of written language, right, right there in the scriptures, so that we, through our faculties that he's given us, things like our brain and logic and things like that, He's given us these things to be able to understand him at least as far as we can. And so part of that is to understand a few, I'd say, guiding principles when it comes to God, right? Things like God is omnipotent. Well, in general, we can we can kind of understand, okay, that means he's all-powerful. But then you get into things like, well, what is it what exactly does all-powerful mean? mean? Um, what if God wanted to make a rock that was so big and so heavy that he could not pick it up, right? Can he do that? Can he make a wall so tall that he can't jump over? Right, we could do that kind of thing all day, but those are just like logical inconsistencies that doesn't make, it's just an illogical question. Somebody that's all-powerful, you know, the answer really would be, well, if God chose to do so, then it would be so. And if he chose not to do so, it would not be so. Uh, to, he cannot really be, he's not limited um, other than things like, well, because of his nature, he cannot sin. He does not sin, right? He does not do wrong because 
what is right, what is true, what is good, stems from who he is by nature and things like that, uh, conversations like that. It's difficult to sometimes wrap your brain around things like omniscience. He knows everything. Uh, does that mean he knows everything in the future? And if he knows everything in the future, then does that mean that he actually makes that happen or he just knows it's going to happen? You know, is that, what is that, what implications is that on free will, right? This kind of stuff all stems from thinking some of these concepts through, whereas the concept itself, all knowing that it, it's a, okay, kind of a basic concept. They know everything. Um, but once you start diving into it, right? eternal, everywhere present, right? Things like that are, they're not easy to completely comprehend, although the concept itself is still sort of basic. And where I'm going with this is one of our guiding principles is that we have to understand the scripture teaches that God has uh, omniscience. He knows everything. He has perfect foreknowledge. And so God can state things that are, they are not yet, they have not happened yet, and he can state them as though they've already happened in the past. Now, the way I visualize this, and you can, you can do whatever you want, right? I visualize it, you know, you take time and you put time, um, you know, in one hand, there, there's time right there, all of time, past, present, future, it's all right there happening on a video screen. God is, he is back away from that, watching it. He's outside of it. He's outside of time, right? Time is a, in, in a way, it's a physical construct, but God is not physical. He's spiritual. He's eternal. He's a spirit, and he's not bound by time. So at all points in time, all time is happening before him at the same time. In other words, right now in 2021, at the end of 2021, Jesus is being crucified, Noah is on the ark, and whatever's happening a thousand years from now is happening a thousand years from now. God God does, is, not, is not bounded or limited by time. At least that's how I kind of understand it. And see, your understanding might be a little bit different. But the scriptures certainly seem to indicate that God knows all things. And so... God can use prophets to prophesy things that will come to pass in the future because God knows what's going to happen in the future. And again, God can have people under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit write things down in Scripture that this thing had not happened yet, and yet God's talking about it as though it already did happen. And because of that, we, we do have to, we have to be careful with how we utilize time in our proof texts or whatever it might be. And I'll give you some examples here as we go through this. So we're going to start off in 1 Peter 1.20. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 says, For he, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Now that's the NASB. Now how can you be foreknown before the foundation of the world. Um, you're, you're not in existence yet, right? Um, but that, see, God can do that and say that because he's not bound by time like we are. Now, we, all we know is the boundaries of time. 
That's all we know. That's all we experience. Everything that we know in the physical world, right, it's bound by time, so it's very difficult. Okay, that, uh, <laughs> it's difficult to really put ourselves in that mode of we know what this means. We know what it looks like. We know all the implications. I don't think so, but we can take what the Scriptures say and just say, all right, well, I trust that what, what that says is true. Romans 8.29 says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, Who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Jesus Christ, right, the Christ, the man walking around, he had not come into being, right? He, the incarnation was not a thing before the beginning of time. But in the thought and the mind and the foreknowledge of God, yes, it is. It's a reality because God is not bound by the constraints of past, present, and future. And so it's, you know, again, this is, when we get into John 1.1, we'll talk more about this, and we're actually going to do a, an episode just on John 1.1, but we'll talk a little bit more about how, again, God can see and know and even speak and, and um, almost act like things have already happened when they hadn't happened yet. Okay, Jacob and Esau, right? Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. Why? Well, Romans gets into this a little bit before they'd ever done anything, right? God looked forward and said, this is, this is the decree, this is how it's going to be. Um, any kind of prophecy works this way. You're going to bear a son, and you're going to call his name Jesus, and he's going to save his people from their sins. Well, I mean, was, was that all a guess? <laughs> I don't think so. Um, so God has this, uh, again, this attribute of omniscience, or, uh, and not even omniscience in the sense of everything that's present right now in the world. Now, I know there's, there, are, there are those who believe in open theism, so everything that is, that is to be known or can be known, God knows but he doesn't know the future because it hasn't happened yet. I know there's a debate there. And again, there's probably a debate there because uh, people um, people have a hard time wrapping their brains around some of this stuff. Uh, however, I, I, I don't prescribe to open theism, um, although, again, right, I'm certainly open to whatever the Bible actually teaches, but I think the, te the, the Scriptures indicate that God knows the future perfectly as well. Now, check this out. Jeremiah 1.5. Now, this is very, very, very important. Jeremiah 1.5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Now, before Jeremiah was ever born, he was not even in existence yet. God is already saying, A, I knew you. B, I set you apart, and C, I appointed you as a prophet of the nations, even though Jeremiah is not even in existence. This is very important because when people get to, say, Jesus and things and words talking about Jesus, and th then people, again, come up with, 
Well, he must have eternally existed in time past. Well, did Jeremiah eternally exist in time past? No. Even though God is saying, I knew you before you were born, well, surely that must mean that there's some kind of spirit existence, and then the body comes, and your spirit goes into the body. No, that's not what the scriptures teach. The scriptures just teach foreknowledge of God. But you could probably come up with a doctrine right there and say, oh, see, who's around for God to know? Who's around for God to set apart? Who's around for God to appoint? Well, he hadn't been born yet, so surely there's some kind of spiritual essence that is in existence eternally already, and then that that form or that spirit just goes into the body. No, the scriptures don't teach that. I'm not sure that there's... Well, there's probably people that do believe that, I guess, but there's probably not a ton of what we would think of, say, Orthodox Christian slash Catholic circles that would believe something like that. And yet here God is saying, I knew you, I set you apart, and I appointed you even before you were ever even formed in the womb. So this is why we have to be careful because God has this quality of perfect foreknowledge. So check this out. Here we go. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. So again, we have to be careful here, right? Does this mean we were all in existence before the creation of the world? Because how could he choose us? He's actively, right? He's actively participating in choosing us when we're not even around. We're thousands of years from being around. How is this possible? Because God has perfect foreknowledge. He has omniscience. Uh, Revelation 13, 8, all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the book of life, belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. Uh, slain before the foundation of the world. There's different, there's different renditions of this, but no, he wasn't, he was slain sometime around, what, 30 AD, 33 AD, somewhere in there. Um, how is this possible? Again, the scriptures, and these aren't, this isn't an exhaustive list, but um, these are the ones that I, I think are, they, they really get to the point. And, and, and then I'm going to end it here with, with Romans 4, 17. But, but again, you can see it in action, things being talked about, even acted upon before they're even in existence. Romans 4, 17 kind of brings it home and says, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom, we, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. God can do that because to him, he sees it all one boom. He sees it all. He's there in the past, in the present, in the future. And that, my ladies and gentlemen is why I generally <laughs> turn my phone off during the podcast. Um, did you like the uh, little Clint Eastwood throwback there? Anyway, um, the, the, the concept here is that God 
can call things and even interact in the, in the case of a couple of these scriptures interact with something before in time it's even a thing therefore while we are discussing god discussing uh his nature discussing um the godhead we have to be careful of trying to use temporal right time-based proof texts because they can get us into grave danger. They can get us into grave danger. Um, the the other issue is maybe maybe less of one, but it's also the the idea of omnipresence. God is everywhere present. Um, you know, David said, or the psalmist said, I'm not 100 sure whether it was David or not, but the psalmist said. You know, if I make my bed in hell, you're there. Uh, if I if I you know ascend into the heavens, you're there. Um, that is a good scripture to show that I mean God is everything. This is a uh, Psalm one thirty nine and eight. Psalm one thirty nine and eight. Let me go ahead and pull that up and read it. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So it, it's letting us know you, you, can't, you can't get away from where God is. Um he goes on in verse 13, Psalm 139, 13, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. So again, God has this, this essence of being everywhere at all times. He's kind of working, flowing. He holds everything together. That, that, that whole concept comes from this, but you can't get to a place. You, there is no place where God is not. And so... We need we need to we need to be careful whenever we're trying to use some kind of proof text of well you know what God I mean this this can't happen this can't be because of and then we fill in the blank with some temporal reasoning where God is not time based right or spatial reasoning where God is not bound to to space one location the other location like we are. So we have to be careful. And why do I say this? John 8, 44. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. For there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Okay? Now... The reason I'm using this is to show metaphorical language, language that the Bible uses. Obviously, the devil did not get with some chick and actually have a baby called lies. He is the father of lies, right? He was a murderer from the beginning. Well, who did he murder in the beginning, right? This is from his heart. This is who he is. It's down. He didn't literally kill somebody way before there were even people. Uh, so this is metaphorical language, and now I'm going to get to the, what I am 
what I am really getting at here, <laughs> and that is John 17, 18. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. So there's a lot of um, ado sometimes about this, uh, this idea that Jesus was sent from heaven. So therefore, he had to have already been in heaven. And so there's an eternal, you know, Jesus in heaven who then gets sent to the earth in the incarnation. But God is omnipresent. God didn't leave heaven to come to earth. When God is walking around the earth, he's also in heaven. He's also in hell. He's also in everywhere, <laughs> right? And so it, it's it, it's a it's a metaphorical picture or, or word usage when God says things like my arm. Well, God is spirit. He, you know, he, my ear's not heavy that it can't hear. My arm's not shortened that it can't save in, in Isaiah. Well, I mean, he doesn't actually have ears. He's a spirit, right? But he's using metaphorical language, just like, you know, uh, you will hide me under your wings. I mean, God doesn't have, you know, wings and feathers, right? So, so metaphorical language all over the Bible. And maybe that should be a third thing, is the, the use of biblical metaphor, uh, personification, uh, things like that we need to be cognizant of and be careful not to use proof texts based off of a metaphor. But I think John 17, 18, in and of itself, really does kind of capture it. He says, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Well, if Jesus being sent into the world... Jesus being sent into the world means he was already in heaven, so therefore he was sent into the world. Then where were the apostles? Because it says, the same way that you sent me into the world, I send them into the world. So if you sent me into the world means Jesus was not in the world, he was up in heaven, I sent him. Where were the apostles when they were sent? Because it says, I sent them into the world the same way. Ah, obviously, we understand metaphor. We understand even omnipresence, we understand. We understand what's going on with with the language here, but people will will hinge on this thing, just hold to it, and be like, "Well, no, Jesus was sent into the heaven. Where he was, he into the world. Where was he sent from? Clearly, he was already in heaven." Mm -mm. No, that's not true because when kids graduate. A lot of times the keynote speaker will say something to the effect of we're sending them out into the real world or whatever. They're not in the real world now. It's metaphor. And it's answered in John 17, 18. He says, the same way you, the Father, sent me, Jesus, into the world, I, Jesus, have sent them, the apostles, into the world. So uh, it doesn't really work. And so I just want to clarify, right? Many of God's attributes, we have to be careful not to limit him or to put him in the same box that we are when it comes to foreknowledge, omnipresence, omniscience, uh, all of these things. And again, I think a good, a good, uh, uh, I don't know, it's not, it's not completely different. So uh, a, a kind of mixed in point, but a separate third point <laughs> also is that the biblical use of, uh, of linguistic 
uh, terminology, you know, not really devices, I guess we'll say, linguistic devices, uh, literary devices, like metaphor, simile, personification. These things are used in the scriptures, and we have to be careful. The thing is, we just have to be careful, honest, and as we've been talking about, try to derive the truth from the Bible and not come at it with preconceived notions and just find a proof text. So, um, the last thing I'm going to get into here is a pretty interesting little study, and uh, it, I think, helps to, helps to guide or navigate the is Jesus God question. And I believe that Jesus can rightly be called God. I believe he is God. I believe the scriptures show that he is God. And the way, as we talked already in depth, that he's God is that he's got the Father indwelling him without measure, in abundance, no human father, right? There's no human being ever like this. No human father. His father is God Almighty, or as we know, the Holy Spirit, right? According to both Luke and Matthew, the Holy Spirit fathered uh, Jesus in the womb of Mary. Of course, we know the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of the Father. Go check that episode out. But, so the Father and Mary have a son, and that's Jesus. The Father indwells Jesus, his very, na- his very nature, his spirit is in Jesus, and that makes Jesus God. Now, here's the thing. There is a little PDF, like a pamphlet, called The Wheel of Prophecy. And I'm, I'm not really sure why it's called The Wheel of Prophecy. Um, maybe it's because of the prophetic nature of who Jesus will be, I think. And the question is, who is God? Will of prophecy, who is God? And this is compiled by C.P. Kilgore. I've had this for years. Um, it You can find it at, it's called Pentecostal Publishing House. And I think you probably looked that up online. It's the Wheel of Prophecy. Um, and so, again, just uh, want to give a citation, give the proper kudos to the person who came up with this but it's a great um it's it's got a wheel in the middle of the um in the middle of the pdf it's the bulk of it you know 70 percent of the of the of the thing is a wheel in the middle it says one god which we've already covered we know there's one god on one side it has um i'd say on the upper hemisphere it says you know all these scriptures about jesus and then on the bottom ish maybe it's let me see maybe it's left and right okay we'll call the west hemisphere the east hemisphere we've got jesus along one side we've got god on the other side and we have various scriptures and statements that god made that jesus also made and i will give you a couple of examples let's go to isaiah 44 and 6 the book of isaiah 44, 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Okay. Later on in verse 8, it says, Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you uh, from of old and declared it, and you are my witnesses? Is there a God beside me? There is no rock. I know not any. So, 
then we go over to Revelation, Revelation 1.17, and Revelation 1.17 says this, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead. And now look, I'm alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. That was 17 and 18. But wait a minute. Yahweh says, I'm the first and the last. Jesus says, he's the first and the last. So, you know, which which is it? Of course, this is repeated uh, at the end of Revelation. Jesus says it again at the closing of the book of Revelation. Uh, this is the entire thing, though. The entire, like, wheel has all these statements of um, Jesus or about Jesus and yet about God, Yahweh. Right, showing that God is Jesus. Right, Jesus is God. <clears throat> of course, we talked about the difference between the man and the indwelling Father within Jesus. Sort of the dual nature of a God-Man, and uh, you can watch that episode as well. But here's the deal, or listen to that episode if you're not watching on YouTube. But here's the deal. We um, we see these all over Scripture, right? All over Scripture. Uh, you know, Isaiah forty three eleven, right? There's no Savior besides me, and yet Luke two eleven, Matthew one twenty one, Jesus will save his people from their sins. He is the Savior. Um, the the John 10, he's the good shepherd, versus Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, and uh, on and on and on and on. Now, I think it's interesting. I think it's a pretty cool little study, so you can go go look at that and just kind of tie some of these together, because um, the statements that are made are very um, exclusive. You know, especially when you're in that Old Testament, I mean, Yahweh is like, I am the only one. There is no God besides me. There is no other. There's no, you know, no God before or after. Um, and then yet we get to the New Testament, and, and many of these things are um, reiterated. And it's Jesus. <laughs> so how is that possible? Um, I'm trying to find the one. There's Philippians 2. Um, Philippians 2, which I think most people are aware of, and it's Isaiah 45, 23 is another one I want to read. Because it's pretty, again, it's pretty cool, and that one's a really, really, I think, popular... Um, popular scripture. So let me let me pull these up. Isaiah 45:23. Isaiah 45:23. By myself I have sworn my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked before me. Every knee will bow. By me every tongue will swear. Okay? That's Isaiah 45:23. And yet, Philippians chapter 2, 
9 says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice it's to the glory of whom? God the Father, right? It's the glory of the Father that every knee will bow and tongue confess. So again, over and over and over, Jesus as as a you know a shepherd, the rock, uh, first and last, you know, king, the only savior, all of these things tie together in this wheel of prophecy. Now, I think it's pretty interesting, and I think it's something that you, again, can go look at. Pentecostal Publishing House, I think they have a website you can probably get this little tract on. But um, I got it years ago and found it um, pretty useful to be able to just kind of study through and look at that, because I do think that Jesus is God. You can absolutely rightly call him God, although the, I'll say the godness of him, as with the um, the scripture we just we just read, right? It's the, it's the Father indwelling him, because in Philippians, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess, right, that Jesus is Lord, and who gets the glory for this? The Father, <laughs> right? And so the, the one true God is indeed the Father, and that indwelling, the dwelling of the Father within Jesus, within Jesus, makes Jesus God. But he was not only God, he was God and man. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, 27-28, For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not mean God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him, who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Now, let's use Father and Son here, because there's clearly the distinction in these verses, and it makes it a little bit clearer. Um, obviously, the words are God, but see, it's using Father and God. that This is interchangeable. Check this out. For he has put... <clears throat> everything under his feet, for the Father has put everything under the Son's feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under the Son, it is clear that this does not include God, right, parenthetical, the Father himself, who put everything under Christ. When the Father has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to the Father, who put everything under the Son, so that God, right, parenthetical, the Father, may be all in all. This lets us know, again, at the, at the end, even, even the Son is going to be subject to the Father. Now, if they are already in a triune relationship, and there's already a subjection based only on their relationship or, or, or positional authority, right? We talked about Jesus saying, you know, the greater, the greater that uh, I, go to, I go to your God and my God, the Father is greater than I. Wait, that's already there. That already exists, doesn't it? certainly seems that, that that would be the case. So what is this scripture saying in 1 Corinthians 15, 27, and 28 then? Well, it certainly sounds like what's going to happen is the sonship is going to be made subject over to God. Everything, all enemies have been defeated. It's going to wrap everything up, and everything is going to be subject to whom? 
everything's going to be, be subject to Christ. Everything's going to be put under Christ. And then it says, oh, 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 just, just making sure you understand that not everything is going to be subject to Christ because God won't be subject to Christ. Now, it's clearly making a distinction between Christ, right, the man, the office of that man, the Redeemer, um, the, the Lamb, the Mediator, right? And then God, and this is also in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, God, Christ, man, woman. You see this all over Scripture. You see how that there is that interaction where Jesus is rightly, you know, being called God, where he's taking the, um, he's forgiving people, he is healing and doing all these things, and, and, and it's like, well, this guy's God. But then it goes, oh, wait a minute, no, he's going to be subject to God. So you have that dual nature where, yes, he can rightly be called God. Yes, he's God, but the reason he's God is the nature of the Father, the Spirit of the Father indwelling Jesus Christ, indwelling the man. That's what makes him God. And so we see that here. We see how everything is subject to him, how he's he's there he is making intercession for the saints. He's ruling as Lord. And then everything is defeated. Every enemy is defeated. Everything is subject to him. And then he is subject to who? The Father. He, he's, boom, God, Christ, man, woman. It's so easy. It's so simple. Yeah. Anyway. And then Revelation 22, 3 and 4, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. So, <coughs> we know, uh, again, Revelation talks about one throne, one sitting on the throne. It's the throne of God and of the Lamb. And then it says, his servants will serve him. Who's the him? God and of the Lamb. They can be used interchangeably. They can be used interchangeably because Jesus is God. The Father indwelling Jesus makes him God. Thomas said, my Lord and my God. So, uh, again, I, I think these are pretty good indicators of the, the godness, the, the, the deity of Christ. Now, as I've said in every one of these episodes, and I don't think I've said it this time, so I'm going to say it now, I do not believe that this, you know, this knowledge is something, knowing, you know, what, all how God works and his, his deity and his nature and the Godhead and all this. I don't think that that is a test that one has to take and get correct, or at least get a 90 and above, um, to be saved, to be in fellowship and, and be um, brothers with uh, with the the church and that kind of thing, but I do think it's something that we should try to understand, something we should try to get a hold of. It's good to know, and I do think there are certain types of misunderstandings that could lead to heresies, could lead to things that are going to damage your salvation. But in and of itself, I think people, there, there there's a spectrum of allowable understanding where people are going to have differences on some of these things. And I don't think it's something that we should we should you know damn people to hell because they don't see things exactly like we do. Obviously, I think my position's correct, but so does everybody else that has a different opinion or position. And so, I think we just need to be able to go to the scriptures, discuss those, and in that context, context, <laughs> context, 
things like biblical language, use of imagery, metaphor, uh, literary and uh, linguistic devices, right? metaphor, simile, personification, there's others, uh, as well as understanding God's qualities or attributes, things like he's omniscient, he's eternal, he's omnipresent, he's omnipotent. These are things that we need to take into consideration when we are formulating our scriptural opinion of God's nature. Please hit us up with any questions, comments. Love to know what you're what you're seeing, thinking. Is this, are you feeling this is useful, helpful? Um, do you agree, disagree? You know, throw some of those comments in. Let us know. But we're gonna drop it right here. God bless you. Love you. And looking forward to seeing you in the next podcast.